0: It's episode 67 of Grow Yourself Up. Welcome back. Thank you for being here. Today, we are continuing on with the theme of growing up in a family where the parents are narcissistic, which broadly means that the needs of the children um, get put aside because everyone in the family is focused on meeting the needs of the parents. And um, emotional neglect always runs through um, uh we we always have this experience of emotional neglect when we grow up in a family where our parents are this way. And today we're going to talk to Harriet Shearsmith. I'm delighted that um, she's sharing her experience of growing up in a family where her mum was narcissistic. So Harriet spent a lot of time tending to the needs of her mother. And she's going to talk about how she has put down boundaries in the present moment, how she has protected herself from those ongoing dynamics, because these dynamics don't stop when we are, um, when we ourselves grow up. Um, often we continue to have multiple conversations with that parent today. We are still tasked with, um, managing their emotions, their upset, anything that's going wrong in their lives. We may even consider ourselves their best friend or they, we may feel like we're so close, but in some sense, be strangled by that closeness or there's no expression for our own authenticity it still continues to be all about the parent so if you notice any um, dynamics like the similar to your to your life just go gently on this some of this stuff takes a really long time to notice to accept and to make any changes around so Harriet Shearsmith is a mum of three and the content creator behind Toby and Roo and the Unfollowing Mum podcast. Um, on the podcast Unfollowing Mum, she discusses parenting after childhood trauma, estrangement and navigating toxic family dynamics. Harriet is a trauma informed empowerment coach and she is currently taking coaching clients. You can contact her via Instagram, um, which is Toby and Roo. And um, she's here sharing her story about what her own child was like and um, all her contact details and the way you can find her will be in the show notes and also the details for her podcast. Okay, let's dive in. Thank you so much for joining us, Harriet. It's so lovely to have you here. Um, I love your account and I love what you share on your own podcast, Unfollowing Mum, about um, a lot of your own childhood stuff and other um, kind of experts. And I'm so pleased that you've joined us here to talk about how you've grown yourself up in motherhood. Do you want to start by telling us a bit about your journey to motherhood, um, about your kiddies, how many you have?
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. My journey to motherhood started quite young. I think I'd always wanted to be a mum. I'd always got it in my mind that that's what I was going to do. I was going to be a mum. I think I'd always said I'm going to have, you know, lots and lots of children. I'd always wanted to have five children. I actually have three. Um, And that had been my dream really which yeah. now I say that knowing what I know about my own experiences in childhood it was that need to have something to love someone to be with all the time someone to nurture because that's yeah. how I'd been raised but I am very lucky to have three kids I had my eldest when I was I think it was I was pregnant when I was 21. I think I'd just turned 22 when I had him. Yeah, I must have done so. It's quite a young mum. He's now 12. So we are well and truly in the preteen teen phase. He's actually such a big boy. And I remember when he was leaving primary school, all the teachers were like, he's very hormonal, much more like a <laughs> mid-teen than a preteen. Um, and we we're experiencing that very much. So we're navigating that Together because it is something that is really daunting as a parent. And yeah, a real challenge. You know, they've gone from being this little baby, and you have to give them that autonomy, you have to give them that um, respect and help them to navigate this new pathway. So we are currently in the thick of doing that. And I also have my middle son. So my eldest is called Reuben. My middle son is Tobias. And my um, middle son is. 10 years old. He's very cheeky. He's all about his football and all that kind of thing. And he loves it. And then I have my daughter who is eight and she's called Edith. Um, and I I always wanted them quite close together. So that was a conscious decision for me. And I, I love that that's, that's what we've got. We've got the three of them close together and we're now seeing kind of the bridge between secondary school and primary school, seeing the differences in them. And I I love it. I do. I created my career as a content creator and now as an empowerment coach to be around the kids and to be able to be with them as much as yeah. possible and to be able to share the time with them. I felt very much like I wanted to be able to go to the school plays, wanted to be able to do these things. I have to confess, after several years of school plays, I am now not entirely sure that that was... <laughs> Yeah, and that's a very goal i've 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 had enough although they have a school play this evening as we're recording this and um edith was, are you going I, I am i'm going i am going edith was so excited my husband was like oh i don't i don't think i can make it as i like, do <laughs> we are making it we are going to be there with bells on smiling um but after after several years i could miss it <laughs> yeah <laughs> I could be at work, <laughs> but i do I do love being able to have that experience, and motherhood for me has been it's been a mixed bag when I had Reuben. I had a really traumatic birth with him, um, I was very fortunate to be able i ended up having an emergency c section and actually had sepsis afterwards. oh
0: wow, so it was a oh, really I'm so sorry yeah, to hear that. Wow.
1: it was a really traumatic start to motherhood um, That's um, very traumatic I think when we when we have this idea of how it's going to go, you know I went in with my shiny birth plan yes. and I had all these ideas of what was going to happen and then it did not happen that way. And that was really challenging for me. Um, I am somebody who, due to my own experiences in childhood, really like things to be orderly, like to have control yes, over things. control. Like, yeah, yeah, it is. It's a control thing. And I like things to be able to go the way that I have planned them to go. And having that flexibility is something I've really had to work on. But I was very fortunate to have much uh, easier experiences with Tobias, and Edith, so ended up being able to have um, VBACs with them, so that felt much more natural for wow. me. It felt um, less frightening because after having had the sepsis post op with the with the cesarean, that that was quite scary for me to think that I might have to go through another operation. And um, yes. it was quite triggering during pregnancies with with Toby and Edith. So it was really good that I was able to get to a point where I could have them in the way that I wanted to have them and feel empowered in that. So it's been a big journey.
0: <laughs> wow, what a big journey, Harry! Mm-hmm. And there's so much richness in what you've said and so many things I want to come back to. And maybe I'm going to go in the reverse order. Mm-hmm. When you said, um, well, actually, no, let's go back. When you said um, that you wanted to have children because you wanted someone to be with you all the time and you wanted someone to love and it's related to your childhood experiences, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Because I think... For many of us, part of growing ourselves up is actually that um, we initially start off with that view of they're going to be there, someone for us. And then part of it is actually realizing that they're separate and that we can't control them. And, and that can be really painful when we've had that idea. What's that? Does that resonate at all for you? Absolutely, it does.
1: And it's been a real journey of not just growing up and self-discovery, um, but also realising uh, some of my own experiences in childhood were not how I perceived them. So I'm currently, I'm estranged from my mum, and that's what my podcast I'm following. Mum is all about, estrangement, yeah. navigating toxic family dynamics. Um, and I grew up thinking, if you'd have asked me 10 years ago, I'd have said, oh, my mum's my very best friend. We're just so close. But actually, what our relationship was, was enmeshment, And my mum was very much a covert narcissistic mother, uh, very much a parent who didn't see me as an individual, but saw me as a means to an end and as an extension of herself, which is what enmeshment often is. So I think for me, the natural feeling was that I would have a baby who loved me, needed me, wanted to be with me all the time, because that's what I knew. That's how I felt that was the norm to be, was to be close. Um when actually, in reality, you're suddenly confronted with this whole new person, and they are separate to you. So it was a real journey of self-discovery for me, realising, and it's only when I became a mother that I started to look back at my own childhood and think, hmm, that's not how I want my children to feel why do I feel this way? What is it that's coming up here for me that's now making me question this relationship? And it's only when I started to pull away, develop my own ideas that I could see how toxic my mum's behaviour actually was towards me as a person. So it was once I had the the baby uh, and once I had my babies really, and as they grew up older, that I realised how difficult things were with my own mother and that some of my childhood experiences were not things that I wanted to repeat. So I've made a huge effort to consciously parent my own children whilst reparenting myself and examining those experiences and saying, hang on a minute, that's not for me to hold. That's for me to let go of. That was something that was my mum's behaviour. And I can move forward through that.
0: Yeah. And I think that just for people listening, um, Narcissism, I'm just going to talk very high level, is generally where you have a parent who cannot mentalize. So they cannot see that you have a different mind and and are a totally separate person with different wishes. Everything is about getting the parent's needs met. So the child is what you said, therefore, the parent's needs. But um, even when, um, if the child comes to the narcissistic mother and the child is upset, it then often turns into the mother not being able to deal with the upset and, tr- and making the child make the mother feel better. Mm-hmm. And so the child's feelings get totally kind of just left to the side. Um, and so it's really complex and that's often um, a pattern because I know you talk about um, breaking generational trauma cycles and that's a pattern that's it's kind of passed down in families and we think that that's normal, mm-hmm. um, like what you said. So I, I kind of really want to acknowledge how kind of amazing and brave it is that that you kind of notice that because I think there's so many of us walking around thinking that this close relationship where we actually never check in with how do we actually feel but that this close relationship is kind of good and nice and really it's it's what you said often it's really toxic so thank you for really highlighting that
1: oh thank you it, it is really difficult to acknowledge and I, I'll be entirely honest and this is something that perhaps I don't talk about enough there is a almost like a longing for that period of time, or maybe not a longing, longing's maybe the wrong word, but there is almost a missing. I miss that time when I didn't know and when I wasn't aware. This was so much easier. You know, I would look at other people and think, they just don't. Have, they're not as lucky as me. They just don't have this super close relationship where there are no boundaries, and it's very difficult when you grow up as somebody who doesn't have boundaries, who doesn't have the opportunity to put boundaries in place with a parent or anybody to then go on and put them in place with a friend to go in and put them in place with a partner, and then to move forward through your own parenting and put them in place with your own children. It's incredibly difficult, and I didn't have any boundaries at all. And I think there is some power in acknowledging that when I look back at my own behaviours, especially in my late teens and early 20s, they could be incredibly toxic towards friends, towards partners, because for me, the only way in which you could show affection and the way in which you showed how much you loved someone was to completely encompass them because that's what happened to me growing up. Yeah. And if you didn't want to spend all your time with me and be all about me, then obviously you just didn't care about me. And they're the messages that I was sent growing up. It was very much about my mom's emotional needs, very much about the way that things affected her. Um, and that that is something that I have had to sit with and look back at my my behavior And think, okay, yeah, no, I understand that now. And also work on that self-forgiveness as well of saying, okay, yeah, nope, that behavior we are now aware was not great and was toxic. I understand how and why I got to that point and I can now move forward through that and do better. But that inability to acknowledge and to accept that you have had toxic behavior, that is also incredibly common with toxic parents. In my case, um, my mum would never be able to acknowledge or accept that she'd had toxic behaviour or that she was at fault for anything. It's much easier to pass the blame. And we see that a lot with narcissistic behaviours. and I think as well for a lot of people, when we talk about narcissistic behaviours, there's a real confusion between narcissistic behaviors and narcissistic personality disorder. But you can have narcissistic behaviors without having a diagnosis for NPD, NPD. Which is yeah. something that I think is under discussed. And that's how we end up getting to the point where people think of it as a push term or think of it as a, a trending term, when in reality it's not. It's just that we're getting better at identifying those behaviors without needing to diagnose it as a personality disorder because we all have a certain level of narcissism within us
0: yeah some of it's healthy narcissism and some of it's really not (laughs) yeah and indeed it's it's um healthy to i mean children are narcissistic Mm -hmm. and part of them growing up is learning that they're not the center of the universe um but um and yes we do have like we need to have a like a healthy level of narcissism but um this this kind of it's almost like, because I use this analogy with my clients sometimes, that when we're in a family where there's narcissism, we're all in the, stuck in the same jam, and the mood is totally dominated generally by the one parent. And we kind of have to cut ourselves out of that and sort of unstick. But it's so, um, the grief around that when you said, um, you know, I also have grief at certain stages of my life where you don't know what you don't know, and you kind of, it's it's a bit more kind of, blissful in some way um but that cutting ourselves out and separating it's just so like there's so many layers of the grief and what we've lost and um yeah so i appreciate you talking about that and how um did you like how did you deal with that in early motherhood and how did you get over the birth trauma how did you kind of process the birth trauma of your first um boy What helped you with that? Yeah, and I think um, one
1: of the ways in which I think I dealt with it was probably quite an unhealthy coping mechanism of avoidance. I um, shut it out, really and tried not to think about it never really had any kind of therapy or anything for it which I think at the time would have been really useful I harbored a lot of anger and resentment around not being able to breastfeed him uh, not being able to hold him for four or five days or not being able to have him with me in the hospital when I went back into hospital to be treated um but never really processed that. And at the time, my mum and I did have contact. Mum was living with us. And mum was very much swooped in, wanted to help with everything, took over, made sure everybody knew, oh, well, the baby's not staying with her husband. The baby's sleeping in my bedroom. When actually my husband oh. really would much prefer to have had the baby with him but it was very much a, I'm going to take over the situation and I'm going to look after you and do everything for you. And I'm the one that's picking up all of the pieces. When in reality, I think I would have been much more comfortable looking back now if I'd have been allowed to have that space and allowed to have those experiences with my partner. And that's not to say that I wasn't appreciative of the help because we certainly needed it. Um, but it was the centering of self yet again. So I think for me, when it came down to it, I was quite avoidant with those birth trauma experiences. And initially after I had Reuben, I I think a part and parcel of how I became poorly was not wanting to rest and not wanting to hit the pause button and give myself chance to stop Um I've very much struggle and again this is common with children who have experienced parentification, for example, which was what you'd said before about making um the parent is the uh, the parent is at the center and you're responsible for the parents' emotional needs. That was emotional parentification for me growing up. Physical parentification obviously is a little bit different, but for me there was an awful lot of that growing up. I was my mum's standing spouse and therapist. So when you've had that experience growing up and you've had a lot of messages talking about not being able to rest or being lazy or stopping is um, taking, the, taking your foot off the pedal and that kind of thing, then I found that really hard and I still to this day find it really hard to rest. I still to yeah. this day feel a guilt around resting, a guilt and a, almost a shame. Around needing to just stop. I'm terrible when I'm poorly. Um, And it's something I have to sit with. You just push
0: yourself to keep on going.
1: Oh, yeah. And I remember doing a two and a half mile walk about five days after I'd had the C section. And my husband was like, This is a bad idea. And I was like, I don't care. Let's go and do it anyway. (laughs) and um we walked to the birth registry office and i just i just wanted to go out with my pram i wanted to go out with my baby i was excited and i was exhausted and i just ignored the exhaustion ignored all the warning signs and went ahead and did it anyway and funnily enough you would think that i would have learned with having ended up with sepsis um but i did not i did exactly the same with my middle son and um then with my daughter, wanted to go to play parks and all sorts after a day and ended up with mastitis. So oh, <laughs> it, is, it is a oh. warning to um, allow yourself to hit the pause button. And that was something that I think I've only got to the point now in my 30s where I would be much better at hitting the pause button because I realized that there isn't shame or anything to feel guilty about in needing to stop. In fact, it's incredibly healthy to just stop to give yourself that space. And resting is productive. But in those early days, for me, I think a part of the avoidance was not allowing myself to rest and not allowing myself to stop. I spent an awful lot of time after I came out of hospital booking us up very thoroughly with playgroups and mummy meetups and all of these things. I think there was not a day apart from the weekends where we didn't have something at least once a day. Yeah. And that's a lot now I look back at it. But at the time, I just thought I was being the best mum that I
0: could be. Yeah, I think that um, what you've just shared is so widespread that we um, I was also a parentified child, um, kind of tending to my mother's needs as well and trying to manage my father's drinking and all different things. But um, I think that the, that learning that we get, of uh, we're there to meet someone else's needs and also the kind of um that we need to do it perfectly and the um i think so much like a legacy of this is so much anxiety because when we're children coping with these adult problems and trying to like what you said being about being your mum's spouse and therapist like we don't know how to do that for children i mean apart from the fact that it's inappropriate we only have childlike coping strategies and i think that um that kind of pattern that gets imprinted on your, on our nervous systems around, um, how do I sort this out? Like there's so much kind of churning for a start. And, um, there's so much, there's like absolutely no co-regulation when our parent is like that, because they cannot be present for us. So we are desperately trying to be present for them. And so many of us just cycle through our survival states and our nervous systems. So no wonder rest is hard. I mean, I'm 47 and, um, only really in motherhood have i um come to sort of work much more on rest and i still struggle massively around bedtime actually Mm. around going to bed at an early time and i know that many of the listeners will will resonate with um how complex it is to allow ourselves rest and then even when we do allow ourselves rest um i've really tracked my own body sensations and i get kind of a message for my own body of this is not okay yeah and and we really have to do that kind of internal work of it is okay like it is okay sweetheart. We we don't have to it's like i feel so kind of compassionate for so many of us you know this kind of like endless driving how have you kind of um i mean how do you marry up like your career and ambition and trying to get rest because that's a really a complex mix it is. It's a really complex
1: mix and one that I don't feel I have the best answers for, to be completely honest with you. I am very much, um, I'm very hard on myself still and I am aware of it. I think as I become more aware of it, I challenge those thoughts more or I sit with them at minimum. Yeah. And I have a lot of struggles around, well, maybe if you did this better or you worked hard or you did that. And I, my negative inner critic can be really strong at times. So for me, one of the things that I find quite useful, I mean, it's its such a cliche, but journaling absolutely helps. Going out running has been something that I've found recently has been really useful for helping me to clear my head. Um, it gives me that 45 minutes in the morning to just be alone. It doesn't mean I have to compromise getting up early. <laughs> do you do that before your kids go to school? Yes. Yeah, I do that wow. before my kids get up. So That's I usually amazing. try and get <laughs> <laughs> I usually try and get out by about six thirty in the morning to go for uh, which again my kids are slightly older so if listeners are listening to this thinking my kids will be well and truly up and and at it by that time then yeah, yeah mine would have been when they were younger we were the 5am club for a long time so there are certain <laughs> yeah there are certain privileges in having slightly older kids that are um going to give me a little bit more time with it comes having to drag them I literally drag them out of bed at times and be like, come <laughs> on, uh, you've got to go to school. So, you know, yeah. swings and roundabouts. But I think in terms of navigating and balancing, I'm not actually as good at it as I might come across. I can be really, ch- I can be really difficult with myself and have to really sit with that inner critic and say, hang on, look, is this fair? Is this fair? what do you, why do you feel responsible for perhaps this not doing well? Or why do you feel that this, what can we examine here that could make this better? But I have found that especially for my mental health exercises, and I say this as someone who has spent 20 years diligently avoiding exercise. Um, I found that incredibly useful for my mental health, getting out. And it might be that for some people, it's not going out and having a run, it's having a walk or it's sitting with a coffee for 10 minutes on their own and kind of retraining your brain to allow you that time to just stop but I can be on my phone trying to read a book and keep stopping starting because I'm wanting to do other bits on work and especially working in social media the the devil there really is that it's so accessible to me it can be accessible at two o'clock in the morning I can be online chatting and doing things because that's my job that's what I do for a living so it's um difficult to be strict with myself And I've tried before to have a kind of, I'm going to switch this off at nine o'clock and that's it. I won't check it again and I never stick to it. So it's a work in progress, definite. And I think there is something quite powerful in saying it's a work in progress and that I am okay with that, that I am working on these things and that I am getting better. Certainly journaling writing out the negative thoughts so I can see them and being able to look at them and actually challenge it and say, mm, that really isn't fair or accurate, actually. Look at all the things you've achieved. And I am a big fan in kind of um, being able to look at the things that I've achieved and practicing gratitude, which again, is a cliche, but it definitely works.
0: Definitely works. Yeah. I really, I am... I, um really identify with what you shared. And I also think that we need to talk more about how many things are a work in progress because um, like when we, lots of things that, well, like lots of things that I share are kind of, um, all of them are work in progress. You know, recovering from anxiety is a work in progress. Um, uh, being present for ourselves when we're having a tricky time with our kids is a work in progress. Reparenting is often, because sometimes we spend much more time in our inner child in that place of fear and self-doubt and it takes a while even to realize um that we're in that place because fear is actually quite an effective motivator especially at work you, we can kind of get really far with motivating ourselves with with fear and then the perfectionism and so um and also the inner critic because that seems like if we let up on ourselves uh, that we'll kind of get nowhere yeah. and so it takes a really long time to learn actually kindness and softness to myself are actually more effective but I think that many of us go in and out of that, you know?
1: Yeah, and I think there is a myth that once you start perhaps therapy, coaching, whatever it might be, and you start doing the self-work, that you will get to a point where you are healed. And I think that's a, that's a huge myth because we're always yeah. healing, we're always finding new triggers, we're always finding things that we perhaps need to examine within ourselves. So the myth that you are healed or that you will break a cycle, it is a myth we are constantly evolving, constantly learning new things about ourselves. And again, with breaking the cycle, I talk a lot about generational trauma and breaking the cycle. And there will be cycles that I will break, but there will also be cycles that I will carry on and that my children will go on to break. And I have to be kind to myself about that and allow myself to recognize that that is just a fact of life because parenting as a society, we're always evolving how we think things should be done. We're always learning and hopefully doing better for the next generations. You know, when I was growing up, it was perfectly normal to smack, for example. Yeah. Now it's not considered the done thing. When my mum was growing up, it was perfectly normal to hit with belts and to hit at school. Now that's an offense. Yeah, We grow, and that's a a very contentious example, I appreciate that, but we do grow and there are certain things that up until the 1950s we didn't even believe that children really had a, a psychological need.
0: Exactly. We didn't even think they had feelings. No, we didn't. Sort of, it was just yeah. they're
1: there. I mean, how we didn't think that is beyond me. But of course, I it know. is because I'm a different generation. Of course, it's beyond me. It's meant to be beyond me. I'm not meant to look backwards and say I understand how they 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 saw it that way. That makes sense. Yeah. Because we've evolved from that. But it's it's constantly working on these things. And I do think there is power in dispelling the myth that you are healed or that you break every cycle because it's not reality and it's too much pressure to put on ourselves
0: way too much pressure and I also well I really talk about that too that um and I said this a couple of weeks ago on this uh, that that I will break some cycles um and I know that I've broken some of them one of them was hitting that I'm not going to hit my children and that I'm not going to be an alcoholic but there's other things um like, my own anxiety clouds the field sometimes with my children, um, and then that wants to lead to control. And so that that's something that's still really ongoing, you know, that I have to really kind of um, work on. And I think what you said about, you know, previously, like, there's so much medical trauma, actually, for babies, because we didn't think that babies could feel. We didn't kind of give enough... Um, What is it called? Um, anesthetic often with, with medical procedures for children and so much, um, developmental trauma and childhood trauma was actually caused by that sort of thing because we just didn't think babies were sentient beings. And that's, I mean, it's quite bizarre. I don't, I don't understand how we could think that, but anyway. Um, and Harriet, tell us about what expectations of yourself. And your kiddies, have you had to let go of? How have you moderated um, those? And kind of what are you still working on in that space about expectations or how they should be or how you feel you should be? That is an excellent question. I
1: think when I was first a mum, I had loads of expectations of myself. And for a period of time, I lived up to them as I saw them. But actually now I think that was probably just avoidance on my behalf. You know, I was the mum that would love getting involved in crafting. We'd bake every day. We'd do loud music. Nothing was ever too much. And then once I started with my career and I developed more understanding of my own behaviour, that was when I started to realise that I was just doing so much all the time and expecting a level of perfection from myself this kind of I was expecting I think in my subconscious this image of the 1950s mum who would have and I would frequently have you know new baked things on the table and all that kind of thing but I think I was expecting that image of myself while also being the um, fun mum whilst also being the cool mum whilst just trying to be everything and I really thought that's what I needed to be I think now as they are older. One of the things that I find quite difficult is, especially with the two older boys, when they buck back at me or they don't talk to me with respect, because that happens. It's going to happen. Yeah, of course. And it's not done in the same way that a smaller child does, where they stamp their feet and there's lots of stropping, especially for the teenager. Sometimes it's a real look of complete contempt um When you've asked them to do something and that can be really difficult. And I think my expectation was that I would have an iron fist because that's how I was raised and that I would be the parent who would, well, you won't speak to me like that. I will control that out of you. I will smack that out of you, whatever that might be because that's how I was raised. And actually yeah. the reality of it is that I don't want to parent like that. I don't want to continue that cycle because when I meet him with anger or I meet his contempt with mine, I send those messages that we don't, we can't talk about things, that we can't be calm with each other. So in, in those ways, I think I have, I've, have Not so much surpass my expectations, but that my view of what would have been a good parent has shifted completely, actually done a 180 because I've realized that actually a good parent is not necessarily, or my version of a good parent, I'm the parent that I want to be, is not someone who rules with fear or who rules with disdain um, or shame, but is someone who can sit with my child and say, okay, don't look at me like that because I'm treating you with respect and I ask you to do the same. I appreciate that what I'm saying here is really making you angry and I understand why. I'm asking you to do your homework. <laughs> it's not fun. Yeah, I <laughs> understand why you're angry. It doesn't change the fact that that's outside of the parameters of our control. You have to do your homework here. Yeah, And that doesn't mean that sometimes I don't lose my temper. That doesn't mean that sometimes I don't shout. Sometimes I don't have to Be firm, but not unkind. But when I do overstep and I do shout, I do sit with my son, especially my eldest, and say to him, I apologize for speaking to you like that. I got to this point because I was getting frustrated, but I shouldn't have taken that out on you. I should have taken a few minutes to walk away. And funnily enough, what I've noticed and what I'm really proud of is that he actually does the same. So he will. I give him grace, especially as he's getting older, that he will shout at me and he can be quite rude and quite aggressive in his responses when he's challenged but he will very often before I've even had chance to step in say sorry I shouldn't have spoken to you like that. So that for me is a real sign of self-awareness that most preteens teens don't have because we will stamp our authority onto them and become an authoritarian parent. Whereas what I'm trying to do with him is to get him to be self-aware enough to realize that that's not how he should be speaking to anybody, not just me, but anybody. And that it's not foolproof. It's, you know, frequently I will have to be like, dude, no.
0: But that's normal and that's okay. Yeah, and I think that um, our children, you know, they practice their aggression on us and that when they have a stress response... um, if, I mean, like my children, um, don't square at me yet, um, or I'm waiting. They'll probably at some point tell me to air forth, but they say they call me, someone called me stinky mummy the other day and someone <laughs> called me a big furry monster. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, but, and what I've noticed and exactly what you're saying that when they're in a fight response, you know, that's a, it's just a stress response. If we meet them with a fight response, mm. it just goes, like into some sort of huge kind of explosion. And I think that having enough, um, regulation for ourselves to actually do what you say to kind of just meet their fight response with some sort of moderate kindness and be in a regulated enough place that they can come down from it is so powerful. Um, and then they really, that's kind of, that helps them like not operate from a place of being really activated in their nervous system all the time. Um, and, as you say, it's a real practice. I really want people on you know listening to this not to beat yourself up if you notice that your their fight response triggers your fight response because I think that's what happened to many of us. you know, if we had any talking back as children, there was just literally a crushing um and so to not do that to our children is a huge shift um. It's a huge shift and it's, it's again, a work in progress. It's really
1: difficult and it's something that we have to keep working on and that sometimes we're going to get it wrong. But I often say to people, and I say this to people when I'm talking about um, how toxic parents relate when they have been told, look, I'm going to go no contact or perhaps they've not been told and they've just had a no contact Um it's in the repair. It's in the accountability. That's where our power lies. Because if we yeah. can mess up and then go to our children and say to them, I've messed up there, acknowledge it, validate their feelings and say, I shouldn't have shouted at you in that way. I shouldn't have really lost my temper. I apologize for that. This is how I got to this point, And this is how I should have handled it instead. Let's have a talk about it. How are you feeling? then there's real power in that. And I mean, when I talk to my community about estrangement and navigating that and every single client I have ever had as, as a coach, every single person has just wanted accountability, validation, and then a change in behavior that's it. Yeah. That's all they've wanted, a bit of accountability. And they don't get it, especially if they're talking about things that happened in the past, because you can't change that. And people are aware enough that you can't change that. Children might not be so much because it's happening to them there and then. But when we look back at our own childhood, we're aware that it can't be changed. But a bit of accountability for it and validation
0: for how we feel now, reflecting on it, it's all anybody asks for. Yeah. And I think that the power of um when I've had adult clients where a parent has actually acknowledged their impact and apologized Mm -hmm. and um, not been so defensive that they have to constantly push all the badness out onto the the adult children. Um, There's so much potential for healing. It's kind of quite beautiful. It's almost like, yes, that child will still have the impacts on their own nervous system and of, the, of whatever trauma happened to them, but in the present moment, if the, if the parent acknowledges all of that, it's like really revolutionary and very beautiful. So unfortunately, it's not very often, basically. No, it's not very common, but it is.
1: It's so powerful. And I think if we could get to a place where we were, well, I think when we were raised, I certainly for myself, and I, I can only speak for myself, but I was very much raised that almost as if apologizing was seen as a weakness. Yes. You didn't apologize to children. That's, yeah. Why would I apologize, children? I'm an adult. I'm the parent. I'm the one in charge. I obviously know best when actually, no, we don't. We're all just learning. We can talk about there being, you know, parenting manuals. I've written a book about parenting. It It doesn't matter. There is no set manual for navigating all these different personalities, your own traumas, your own experiences, your own blueprint for parenting or lack of mm. and getting it right. You're not going to get it right every time. But I think if we could challenge that view that you don't apologize to children or that there's a weakness or a vulnerability in apologizing to children, that would make a huge difference for the majority of us in our parenting journey. And it's not just a case of going up and being like, sorry, I shouted at you, but I'm going to shout at you again. It's in acknowledging that, yes, okay, I've lost my temper. Here's why I apologize for that do you want to discuss it? Right, let's move forward. And then bit by bit, we learn to regulate ourselves and adapt those behaviors. And he's still going to shout. You're still going to lose your temper because it's really frustrating when you're asking a 12-year-old to do his homework and you don't want him to do it. He doesn't want to do it. You don't want to help with it. I mean, yeah, (laughs) it's a nightmare, but it is the reality of it. And it's also a good lesson for the kids sometimes that there are things that we have to do within a work setting that we maybe don't want to do yeah um but homework is a difficult one for me to navigate because i'm sat there like i feel you i don't agree with it either (laughs) but you've you've got to help them to navigate these big emotions whilst also regulating yourself and i think you've got to cut yourself some slack in that
0: because that's a big task it's a huge task and i think that from all of this what what actually for many of us happened is that we've been shamed for being human yes and our the, our humanness and our our being perfectly imperfect means that we will do the things that we apologise for. I mean, over time our behaviour will, will will improve, but we're not going to try to transcend and turn into some sort of angel who's, I don't know, always like holier than thou. And that's not actually the aim either. No. Um, so I think that like accepting our own imperfection is so important. And I wanted to go back to something you said earlier, Harriet, when you were talking about how for a while that you, because you, it sounded like you really did embody that kind of perfect mother myth in some way. Um, but as you were living through that, were there not, um, like, how did you actually kind of get through that time? Did you, did, were there periods where you were just like, I can't cope with this anymore, I'm going to collapse into this? Or you just kind of avoided any exhaustion, just carried on going? I
1: think a bit of both, to be honest. I think I was very good at avoiding and very good at, at not acknowledging um how I was really feeling, perhaps, or trying to do it all. I think I poured all of myself into being a mother and left no room for anything else. And... I think the cracks showed when I tried to allow room for other things. If I tried to spend time with friends or if I tried to go out, that was where the cracks would show because that's, I didn't know how to be anymore. I poured everything about myself. And I think there's a, when you grow up with enmeshment and you grow up with a toxic parent who dominates so much of who you are, it's very difficult to know who you are. And to know what you like and to have a sense of self. So in lacking that, I poured so much of what I thought I had to be into being the perfect mother. And it was only really once everything started to pile on top of me that those cracks would start to show. Yeah. And I still do a lot of those things, but perhaps with a bit more moderation as opposed to being angry with myself if things go wrong or angry with my spouse. If he's not met the expectation that I perhaps haven't verbalized. Yeah. Because I've just assumed that that will be met, yeah. um, but I think I was very good at avoiding,
0: and just very good at internalizing a lot of it. And what, um, what kind of, I suppose, caused you to notice that? And because I think what you, that thing that you said about sense of self is so important, because for many of us, um, we have to build things from the ground up and kind of like our needs it's like an investigative process like how might i like to spend my time what is it that i actually like to do what food do i like to eat um you know to really um notice all the things we like and to kind of craft ourselves actually in many ways because previously it's just been in relation to someone else and to really notice individually or independently what it is but how What kind of suddenly, I mean, maybe this was more of a process than something sudden, but what brought you to a place of like, oh, wow, I can't continue like this. It's not sustainable for me. Was there something like a big event or it just happened gradually?
1: Yeah, I think it was when I had my third child and I'd started to see cracks and things start to happen. And it was a process. And I remember turning to my husband once and saying to him, I'm just not coping very well this time. And he was like, well, you're going to have to cope. Like, we've got them now, you're gonna have to cope. And I just remember thinking, Yeah, no, I'm 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 not actually coping very well and I I can't work out why. And it was from then that I started to think, Oh, right, things are not as easy as I thought they were. I'm not able to maintain this quite how I thought I was. And it was also when I started to notice the real breakdown in relationship with my mum and to see her behaviour as very toxic and to struggle with that. I don't think it was ever something that I was particularly self-aware of. I just think it started to gradually fall apart for me. And as I became more aware of the way that my relationship with my mum was toxic, that was when I started to really realise that I had no sense of self. Because before, I would have been... Funnily enough, if somebody had asked me, who is Harriet, I'd have found it really difficult to answer. And I still find that question really confronting and difficult to answer. But if somebody had asked me that, I would have found it very difficult and probably become quite emotional trying to work out the answer to it. But if you'd have asked me, do you feel you have a good sense of self? I'd have been like, yeah, of course I do, and not really realised. So it feels like for a lot of my early adulthood and as I was being a mother, I was floundering around trying to find what fit. And it's only really now, a couple of years into estrangement, nearly three years into estrangement, that I am rediscovering who I am, what I like, what my boundaries are, and being able to put those into place. I have a much more solid sense of self now. And also in liking myself, because if I'm really raw and honest, that's not something I've ever particularly done. And it's not something that I've ever been very good at. And that is a work in progress.
0: Yeah, yeah. I really know what you mean about that. About how we always trying to kind of criticize ourselves into something better, kind of, um, or looking at someone else and thinking it would be better if I were like them. Mm-hmm. Um, And and really, we are. Each of us only has ourselves, and and we are each all beautiful with our own individual like things that are so wonderful to offer to the world, but. It's, it is really difficult to have that sense of self when we haven't, um, when we haven't been cherished for who we are actually and really had our goodness mirrored back to us. Um, and I think that's so much of that. So I've got so much of that from therapy, my own therapy of having my own goodness mirrored back. So then you kind of think, Oh, not so bad. Yeah. You know? And I think that's so important. Um, and I, I think that. And something I wanted to ask you, which I've just forgotten. Um I guess I'm conscious about looking at the time now. Um I wondered if you if you wanted to share with us um thinking about estrangement and thinking about how things started to fall apart for you. Is there any sort of um thing that you'd like to share with um mothers or fathers? Because dads also have this um this issue with some of their with their parents um what kind of helped you deal with estrangement did you have a therapist to support you how do you tend to yourself now how do you deal with people um you know there's so much stuff about how we should be with our parents and there's not enough talking about how our parents should be with us when we were children and that if we're estranged it's it's because of something and it's not no one else's business, but there's everyone. That's one of those topics that everyone feels they can just pile in on, you know. Very much so.
1: Very much so. And I, I mean, doing the work that I do, there is not a day goes by that somebody doesn't make a comment about. But it's your mum, or or you're very selfish, or whatever that might be. It's very difficult to navigate initially, and I am a massive advocate of therapy. I'm training to become a therapist myself at the moment. Yeah, I'm really excited for... I've trained as a a coach, so depending on what you feel suits you best, I would always recommend reaching out to a trained professional who can support you through navigating it. I think one of the biggest things that has helped me is reminding myself that this is a step that is the safest for myself and my children. My mum doesn't have contact with any of us. And as sad as that might be, that is an option that I have had to choose because there wasn't any other option there. And I often say to both clients and people who listen to the podcast, nobody is entitled to you just because they are titled to you. Yeah, doesn't mean that they have a right to be in your life if they can't respect your boundaries and if they can't treat you with respect and kindness and compassion. And that doesn't mean that we don't have the normal family disagreements. But if you are constantly putting in place boundaries, constantly reminding them that their behavior is an overstep and constantly sacrificing your mental health and sense of self-worth at the altar of their ego, then that is the time to walk away. And reminding yourself of that, that this is something that you have chosen to do in order to protect yourself and to protect your peace, and that you are worthy of that is really powerful. I think there's a huge power in community healing as well. Social media has been excellent. And I know we 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 villainize social media quite a lot and demonize it. But It can be a fantastic place for finding other people who have had similar experiences to us and recognising our experiences with their experiences and learning together as a community. That's why I set up Unfollowing Mum. That's why I talk so passionately about estrangement online because it is really powerful to be able to acknowledge that. Also, reading about my experiences has been really helpful for me. I'm somebody who's quite analytical, so if you are as well, Then reading about my experiences, I read a brilliant book by Danu Morrigan called You're Not Crazy, It's Your Mother. And that was all about uh, narcissistic mothers specifically. And that was really helpful for me, reading about toxic family dynamics, reading about childhood trauma, understanding my experiences even from um, a slightly removed analytical point of view, which is also a trauma response. Um, (laughs) But being able to do that, yeah, being able to do that and to see it in the paper has been really helpful in understanding things.
0: Um, But I'd say the biggest part for me was therapy. Yeah, and I think... um, one of the things I think you're so right about community healing and books, I call that bibliotherapy because I think many of us come to a place of like, Oh, wow, look at what's this about my life when you see it written down and when you, and you, we hear other people tell our stories and then we kind of, that really kind of escalates our healing. But one of the most important things about, I think about community healing is, is removing the notion that we are bad. Yeah. Because when we've done, when we go in a contact or when we, um, put certain boundaries down um because of the shame we often internalize that sense that this is my fault i'm bad and and actually we have to push that back up the generations to the parent yeah um and i think that so i think that you sharing your experience will help so many um you know release that sense of badness because it's not ours to carry you know yeah. yeah, I
1: hope so. I, as I said, I think there is so much power in community healing and in being able to see yourself reflected back to you or your experiences reflected back to you and have other people say, yeah, I had this experience. It's actually really common for people to have da 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 da, da And it's not something that you have to carry. And that's really important.
0: I agree with you. Thank you so much, Harriet. This has been really, really lovely. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Um, do you want to tell us this will all be in the show notes for the listeners, but just tell us where can we find you on um social media? Yeah, so you can find me
1: on my main social medias, which are at Toby and Rue, which is the names of my two boys. Edith wasn't born yet. I'm sure she'll put a formal complaint in about it soon. <laughs> it's gonna it's gonna have to be changed <laughs> have to do something with it. Um so you can find me at Toby and Roo on Instagram and TikTok mostly, and Threads now, of course, now that Threads is out there. Um, And you can find my podcast anywhere. We are global with the podcast. So you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. That is Unfollowing Mum, and the pages on social media for that are also Unfollowing Mum. And you can find my book, which is Mum in It, um, anywhere that sells books. Um yeah, that's me. And you can also um, book in sessions with me as a coach if that's something that you want to do, following the links in my social media or just get in touch.
0: Wonderful. Thank you so much, Harriet. And, and also that will all be in the, um, the um, show notes. Thank you so much. Thanks for your time. No, thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Grow Yourself Up, hosted by Kath Cunahan. We'll be back next week with a new episode supporting you to better understand and tend to yourself for more heart-centered, connected, authentic, and resilient living.